Um, if I could, I'd like to just open with a vignette that's not commonly known, but I think is directly applicable to today's topic. In January of 2006, motor vessel Seaborne Spirit woke to the sound of gunfire and rocket-propelled grenades at 4.45 in the morning. 132 passengers were shocked and surprised that four guys on a boat had that kind of weaponry and were that far out to sea. When we learned of it, we tried to describe to the Department of Defense that those were pirates. And we were openly laughed at and mocked because there were bigger issues that people were trying to deal with. When we went back to the International Maritime Organization and inside the shipping industry, we found out this behavior had been going on for a long, long time. It had gone on and gone unreported because of two very different competing business models. One, from the pirate's perspective, it was the understanding that they had to be lucky just once, and if they did, then the prize was substantial. Typically, their modus operandi would be to, to grapple and board on and, and take a ship hostage, uh, effectively hijack it, and hold it for ransom over periods of weeks and months. From the shipping industry perspective, it was easier to move further out to sea. In other words, build distance between themselves and where the pirates were coming from. Because they thought that with distance that gave them time, which gave them an opportunity to reduce the risk of you know, what are the odds? If I get hit, um, it's a remarkable small chance, small percentage, and I can live with that risk, rather than dealing with the certainty that if I were to report this, I would have an absolute 100% uh, confidence that my insurance rates would go up. So on the one hand, you have the shipping industry dealing with low probability, and and at the same time, from the Herodera clan's perspective in outside of Mogadishu, uh, their perspective is all they need is just one. And then that would then continue to fuel uh, opportunities in the future. When we first arrived on the scene and we looked at the commercial shipping traffic over time, what we found out is that we started to give up, we, the collective we, the international we, were giving up thousands of miles of international water to bad behavior. In other words, we were simply tolerating what was going on because we wouldn't and didn't want to have to deal with the certainty of an increase in insurance rates. All that did was promote bad behavior and bring more pirates on the scene because they found it increasingly lucrative. Over time, the solution was, number one, a recognition that we have to change the game. We have to change uh, the way this dynamic is playing out because we're on defense and we're losing. And over time, what we realized is through the use of, of tactical intelligence assets, we could develop pattern of life analysis, know where they're coming from, and therefore know that if we took simple defensive measures that we could at least increase the chances of us being successful in our mission to move commerce around the continent of Africa. I come to this space uh, from a non-technical background. In my uh, last assignment on active duty in the, in the military, I was responsible for a joint task force uh, out of Hawaii that 
uh, looked at contingency planning for any sort of contingency in Asia Pacific and cyber was one of those. When we looked at the role that cyber would play, we had a lot of theories and a lot of ideas and intuitive sort of logic that cyber could influence escalation or de-escalation. In other words, that it could be used in a way that could inform a potential adversary to beware and in an effort offer an exit ramp so that um, we could avoid hostilities, that we could avoid some sort of kinetic action. But it had never been tested. So when we reached out to the U.S. government with the idea that we could operationalize the role that cyber would play in the day-to-day -day thinking of our command, uh, we were met with uh, a lot of a lot of distance and a lot of excuses that they were very busy and they had other things that they needed to do. They were available to grade our homework, but they could not help us plan. So we turned to the private sector. And when we turned to the private sector, we had about 130 different groups and entities that showed up in Makalapa to help us understand how to develop a common operating picture and to develop situational awareness so we could inform ourselves in terms of how to think about the tactical moves required in order to be in this space. All of this was unclassified. All of it came from a history of understanding an IP address and knowing the sort of history and then uh, ways and means that that IP address would facilitate its motivational objectives. In time, uh, when there was an opportunity in, upon retirement to join the private sector, I went back to one of these groups, iSight Partners, which is a commercial threat intelligence company that has uh, people around, around uh, the world. So they're in Europe, they're in Asia Pacific, they're in the Middle East, and they collect locally. And they help us develop a global picture with actionable intelligence. They're inside the malware development cycle so they can see what's coming because after all, this is a business for potential adversaries out there and they have to sell what they've got. When I joined iSight Partners, which eventually became FireEye, uh, one of the things that we noticed was that the value of Intel was misunderstood and not optimized, either in the private sector and sometimes even in government agencies. Think of Intel as content. So you have the ability to, now to have a refresh capability on what's developing and what's taking place inside a very dynamic, changing threat landscape. And with that, you can develop a different perspective. The perspective that I bring to this discussion is really one that's more holistic because I'm a, I'm a career public servant inside the national security space, but also uh, a lifetime consumer of Intel. And, and I see how this information can be used and applied. And, and the issue that I think that we have to confront today is trying to keep pace with an environment that's constantly changing. And so the presentation that we have for you today is, is uh, a combination of insights and experience, but also it's, it's another way to kind of look at how we examine the current threat landscape and how we can help change the game in order to be better prepared or ready for the environment that we're operating in. Now, if we can go to the first slide. So my colleague, Don DeBolt, on the other end of the table and myself will facilitate what I hope will be uh, a conversation amongst ourselves. But we wanted to start off with, here's what the current environment looks like. Zero unemployment. Zero unemployment in this industry. And yet this industry is growing at about 36% and projected to continue growing 
at that sort of trajectory and arc for the next 10 years at least. Um, what this means, though, when you get into the private sector is there's not a lot of choice in terms of the talent pool who's experienced, who has insights, and is available to help companies keep pace with a changing threat environment. So for the customer in the private sector, that means just trying to keep up with what's going on and trying to understand with the thousands of alerts that they deal with each month, um, sometimes each week, sometimes each day, depending on which company that we're talking about, uh, they have to make a risk calculation in terms of whether or not they focus their resources and their assets on one particular alert or another. Um, you combine that with um, companies not really having a technical team that's had exposure to these threats in terms of actual dealing with malware and malware and intelligence together, and unless they've been breached. And, uh, and with that, an industry standard that tends to focus on individual certifications uh, rather than team performance. So it's the combination of how we look at the way the technical team performs as individuals, as well as how they perform uh, as a team. And, and the point that we'll make here today is that increasingly what we're finding in the threat environment is convergence on the part of the adversaries. And what I mean by that is it is increasingly difficult to have a nice, tidy separation between the government side and the, and the private sector side. And what that means is now what we find is nation-state actors who are starting to interfere in the operations of companies or taking great interest in the role companies are playing. And they're using TTP that may have been used in cybercrime or cyber espionage, and they're applying it in different means. It's getting murkier and more confusing to try and separate the two. And a different approach might be holistically, how do I find a way to bring the best of the public and private sector together? I can tell you that when we worked in the unclassified environment in Hawaii, that the issues were less uh, technical and far more proprietary. So you have a commercial sector now that is uh, incentivized to keep pace with an environment. And, and I think the way ahead that I would propose is one that finds a way to unlock now the potential that exists both in the public as well as the private sector. Next slide, please. So this is what we think the private sector, what industry is asking for specifically. I mean, they want relevance. They want what we're doing and what we're um, rationalizing in the way of their time, people, and resources in one that has direct impact uh, and has direct consequence to the day-to-day -day operation of their companies. What that means, though, is that they're increasingly dissatisfied with single-point technical solutions. And that's typically what happens in an industry that's reliant on technology, is that you find a way to rationalize a minimalist sort of approach in what you invest in people. And when you do that, you close the door now to their development, so to succession planning, and you help to facilitate the churn that already exists in an environment where there's no unemployment rate to begin with. So the idea of assessment, the idea of now bringing other um, best practices that come from other industries, this is a lens that many of us who are non-tech have seen before. So here's the example. Next time you get on a plane, look to the left. Ask the folks who are flying, what did you do to get ready for today? And if their answer is, well, we're FAA compliant, you'd go, is that it? Yet that is the moniker, that is the language, that's the impact that regulatory 
onerous practices have had on companies because by the time they've completed all the regulatory requirements, they feel like they're ready. And that's a false sense of, of success. It's a false assumption that should be challenged. And one of the things that we do when we do uh, engage companies and give them an opportunity to go through the experience of a crisis and a crisis simulation is we expose all the assumption that people have made about the role each other would play and how successful or unsuccessful they would be. So typically what you're going to get for an answer from those commercial airline pilots is we've rehearsed every possible mistake that other pilots have made. We've rehearsed every possible weather condition that exists. We've rehearsed every mechanical failure that we know that can take place or has taken place. So the corollary in our industry is, I want Sony. I want Anthem. I want Home Depot. I want to see what happened at OPM. I want the Ukraine breach. I want to be able to see and experience what others have gone through so that my team is ready. When we apply it to cyber, what we're really getting at is we facilitate learning objectives through not only the work that's done at CII, but now giving you an opportunity to apply with a hands-on laboratory, a way of facilitating learning objectives. That is a significant shift in the way that we look at education and learning, is to make it real. Next slide. Yeah. So in looking at what's offered and current today in terms of education, uh, we matrixed out in the typical uh, Gartner qu four quadrants and looked at what uh, the typical classroom experience provides uh, when we compare that to exercises that are being delivered uh, by government, and then what is uh, offered in the commercial sector uh, often to achieve you know, experience uh, and that knowledge um, uh, to enable individuals to, and organizations uh, to compete or combat uh, relevant or timely threats. And we see that the books, classroom, online training, all foundational great uh, uh, a means to an end. In the on-the-job, we get a little bit more specific with some on-the-job training, uh, potentially some tabletop exercises, uh, and, and mentoring. Uh, we learn a lot on the job uh, through mentoring. Within the government, we see a lot of red versus blue exercises, uh, commonly referred to as capture the flag. And these are highly interactive, hands-on keyboards. However, the methodologies uh, are not necessarily true to the adversary and how they actually uh, act in the real world. You have a team uh, typically called the red team, which is the, uh, acting as the adversary and, and pull any exploit out of their uh, hat that they could apply. And uh, again, we want to make sure that it is as relevant to uh, the current threat landscape as possible and highly interactive and vivid. So we see a void here in the upper right-hand quadrant, and we're working to fill that void uh, with the experiential learning model that we'll share here today. So part of that moving to an experiential model uh, involves you know, a paradigm or, or mental shift. Uh, comparing the classroom experience with the uh, experiential experience, we see that uh, what's typically the, an individual in front of the classroom providing subject matter, uh, providing you know, a functional perspective, uh, but in a, a progression uh, over time, Typically, you're, we're in class for 30, 40 minutes, not very long. And uh, the solution is, is foundational. Uh, it's things that we know or uh, need to know uh, for, to apply later. Um, but the students uh, involved are, are individuals. And uh, the onus of learning is really on the, the instructor 
or, or, or trainer themselves. And when we compare that to experiential, we see that it's a team-oriented uh, event. Uh, a team of individuals are facilitating uh, the event. And those individuals are not necessarily respond. The onus of learning now has been sw uh, shifted to the participant, uh, to the student. Uh, we present a chaotic, messy problem to solve, and the teams over time have to work through that problem together. Now, this presents some very uh, interesting challenges, uh, ones that we've seen moving from an individual-focused you know, curriculum to a team-focused uh, challenge has really brought out uh, uh, you know, some learning for me personally over the last year and a half. And I've seen just how valuable intelligence is to uh, the day-to-day -day security operations of you know, commercial and government sectors. And we can see this through uh, the exercises and, and placing the teams and having uh, these teams have to uh, chat, work together and choreograph and collaborate uh, against a uh, timely threat. So what we find is that uh, with companies who are increasingly dissatisfied with the performance of their group as a team, we find that when given an opportunity to assess team performance and we have the right sort of climate in an organization, we can have a consequence-free environment. So we get a free rehearsal in terms of how we would react and respond to actual malware if it was introduced to, um, to our environment. And typically what we find is a series of assumptions that were based on either how technology would handle it or how individuals will handle it. Mm -hmm. And to make it real, we introduce a, uh, a highly ambiguous problem set uh, for individuals. Uh, we have multiple scenarios uh, that are uh, potentially running at the same time, emulating real-world actors. Uh, this takes place over days uh, and it allows the team to reflect. Reflection on the ex exercise, <coughs> reflection on the experience, uh, reflection on what we did wrong and what we did right is a key aspect to, to this process. And uh, to ensure that more is absorbed and then later applied, it needs to be highly immersive and high fidelity. We're using the real-world uh, malware, real-world uh, applications that would be used on the enterprise network, emulating that as close uh, as possible to make it as vivid of an experience at, so that they can recall that when the, the time is, is right and, and needed. So today we pull that relevancy and currency from multiple sources. We have the, the advantage of having a, a worldwide intelligence operations uh, company uh, that can uh, identify intelligence on the adversary, uh, their, their TTPs. We have the, uh, the ability to see when compromise and impact happens, uh, gather the victim uh, telemetry, how the adversary got in, what were their uh, actions uh, inside the environment. And from a machine perspective, capturing uh, the volume of telemetry that is uh, available uh, on the wire today. When we combine all those together, uh, we actually have a, a great, uh, you know, great visibility into the problem set and we can translate that into a, an experiential challenge that will help organizations uh, achieve a, uh, a maturity progression and achieve learning objectives for individuals as well as the organization.
So when you have all of that put together, now you have a means, because you have intel, now you have a means of assessing whether or not you're ready. Now you have a means, because you have intel that's forward-looking and over the horizon with malware that's under development and not necessarily in the wild, you can ask yourself, okay, are, will we be prepared for this kind of adversary when it hits, um, when it, when it hits the market? Mm -hmm. What we've described here now is a way of thinking about preparedness from the individual level, which is at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, working our way to a technical team integration that's in the middle, and then enterprise-wide um, involving corporate leadership, staff functions such as general counsel, public affairs, and others, as well as other business units. And typically, when we start down this path, what we realize is oftentimes technical teams may make decisions that are technically correct, but do not take into account the continuity of operations of the business or understand business impact. Mm -hmm. And we recognize we can't, we can't exercise in a vacuum, right? We have to have foundations of knowledge and theory. We have to ha have a under good understanding of our process and procedure. And to reinforce that bottom layer, uh, we feel that uh, a multi-track approach is required. Uh, teams have to have the technical expertise. Uh, they have to have a good, solid understanding of, of the products that they're using. And key is the work that's being done here is the in intelligence tradecraft. Um, I think this is really uh, one of the missing links in, in uh, today's readiness, is that intelligence is not being integrated. And through exercise, we have the opportunity to manifest to organizations how valuable it is and, and test some of the assumptions that they've made about their own intelligence capabilities. So this is a slide that depicts the proposed sort of way to optimize uh, a better understanding of, of tactical threat awareness. Notice the language that we're using. We recognize that if we use the language of operations, continuity of operations, then that's central to a way a company functions or the way an agency functions. What you see described here now is a way of combining the product along with uh, the work that uh, consultants do with victims as well and enterprise uh, responses, uh, incident responses. And now how we would find a way to optimize a relationship with IWP mm -hmm. on the analytic track. So this is a proposal that we're looking around and what's attractive about uh, presenting it in front of clients and potential customers. Is, is how coherent it is from the perspective of government agencies as well as uh, international government agencies as well as with um, the private sector. And when we're dealing with cyber intelligence, uh, it's not a matter of just having a text and instruction, right? We need to have a technical foundation. We need technology. We need a platform to help facilitate this learning. Part of that is measuring the actual uh, effectiveness of individuals of the team as they combat a threat. And we see a lot of value in pursuing a technical platform that allows us to capture that telemetry so that we can review that in great detail uh, with the individuals, with the team, with the organization. What we learned over the course of time is the impact of being able to recreate events we're borrowing from aviation to show you just how important visualization is in learning objectives. 
It's one thing to be in the middle of a gaggle like this. It's another thing entirely when the flight's over to be able to now look at it, replayed, so that people can see the performance of their own individual aircraft as well as the performance of their team. So the question for our group is, can you do something like that in cyber? Now, granted, we don't have sunglasses for everyone and ascots and very attractive flight suits. But, but we do have diagrams. <laughs> Done. Yes. So what I'd like to do next is uh, walk you through a presentation, uh, actually a replay of a threat space exercise. And uh, this is, let me minimize this. Apologize. Um, I'm in presentation mode, so I have to get out of presentation mode for a second. And we'll see. Here we go. Okay. So this is a highly detailed and large diagram. And what we're going to do today is just use Prezi to fly through the diagram. And this is a, a static uh, capture of a threat space event. So time goes from top to bottom. And what we're doing here is capturing the key events and decisions and communications that happened over the course of two days. Uh, starting from the left-hand side, we have swim lanes that depict the uh, cyber adversary, and then we have the operational teams that are responding to that adversary. So as we fly in, we see that time goes from top to bottom. And during the exercises, we'll take strategic pauses uh, to level set across the exercise team and help <laughs> redirect and facilitate the learning objectives. Again, we have three actors that are uh, acting in this scenario. We have a cybercrime actor, a hacktivist actor, and espionage, all ha operating in the environment at the same time. Um, but we have the ability to, in the exercise, to speed up the, the actions of the adversary if, if the teams are, uh, need to be challenged more, or we can slow down a little bit and allow the teams to, to work through the problems. Uh, this is, again, highly uh, high fidelity. We set up infrastructure just as the infrastructure is set up on the public internet, but this is all in an isolated, controlled environment. What we're looking then is to contrast the, the actions of the adversaries against the actions of the defenders. So in the defenders, we have the SOC team, the incident response team, and the intel team working together. What we look to do is measure key timestamps of when the adversary entered the environment and when the adversary was first detected inside of that environment. That time delta is known as dwell time. We look then at the overall response time of how long did it take to contain or mitigate that threat. Concatenating those, concatenating those two, we, uh, we come up with an overall exposure time. And these are, these are timestamps and metrics that we can use from event to event, exercise to exercise, uh, to measure pro uh, progress and capability. We look and see that there's a number of swim lanes documented here. Uh, each adversary is operating within their own swim lane, but the corporation that's responding, the defenders, have to work together and collaborate. 
And we're looking to see how they collaborate to intersect the actions of the adversary. And we'll measure that in terms of, is this a containment intersect? Is this a detection intersect? Is this prevent preventative in nature? Uh, or is this a forensics exercise? Or was there a bit of, uh, of intelligence that was leveraged to take positive action in, inside the response? So I'll walk you through really quick here uh, some of the detail associated with the exercise. And we see that an espionage actor deployed infrastructure, in this case, some, uh, some mail servers, and distributed a spearfish. Spearfish is probably the number one tactic and technique for introducing uh, malware and gaining control uh, for espionage actors today. So we leveraged the, uh, the common TTPs. In this case, it was sent to two individuals in the environment. And it was quickly detected by the teams through a detection intersect. Uh, this suspicious email was picked up by the operations teams in the SOC and then transmitted through the normal course of investigative response to the incident response team and then uh, onto the intel team. And we see that as we progress across the swim lanes, these are key, key times to, to monitor what was communicated, how it was communicated, and and see if uh, the, the procedures that are in place are working well and if the individuals uh, are, are collaborating effectively uh, to, to formulate a quality response. As we see in this exercise, uh, the teams worked furiously to, to respond, a number of RFIs going back and forth to, to Intel and back to operations, ultimately coming to an initial uh, conclusion that the IP address, an indicator, was associated with a malicious espionage campaign um, driven by uh, espionage actor Net Traveler. And the, there's some context associated that was delivered from Intel to the operations. There's a Chinese-based nexus. Uh, we had moderate, the, the Intel teams had moderate confidence that this uh, judgment was accurate. And the, this entity targeted the Russians and had, a, um, and that the security teams should quote unquote, prioritize accordingly. Now, uh, obviously there it leaves some room for interpretation and what we find in these exercises is that the use of estimated language from an Intel perspective is lost on the technical operators. When we say moderate confidence, in this room we know that that's pretty good confidence. We were, uh, but out in the technical world, uh, it loses its weight. And so this is an opportunity to, to share uh, how the, how teams need to effectively uh, communicate and establish a common vernacular. As we progress through, uh, the teams identify that, uh, that internally the bantering, do we initiate our cyber response now? We have moderate confidence that a, an advanced persistent threat is inside the network. Uh, but the, there was confusion and there was a, there was, um, a reluctance to to initiate the cyber crisis response plan. We didn't have enough details. What percentage of, of systems on the network were, were compromised with malware? The teams were looking for a threshold to, to trigger. Um, and sometimes that threshold is not necessarily a hard, fast one and zero. It's more of a soft judgment that has to be made. As we progress through, we see right after that time that they're debating whether to initiate the cyber response cyber crisis response plan. The adversary is successfully moving laterally within the environment, identifying data of interest, and ultimately exfiltrating data uh, very quickly in the environment. Uh, 
Uh, and the teams then are still debating internally about what process to follow. And here, the, uh, the judgment becomes more clear as the Intel team fine-tunes their, uh, their diagnosis and associates this activity with Team Zen Bao. And that's the exact actor that we were emulating in the exercise. So they had excellent attribution uh, from an Intel perspective, but that attribution was being lost. The impact, the business context was being lost on the operators. As we progress through, we see that Alex Romanoff was the original target. It was patient zero in the environment. That individual was a financial uh, actor and traveled between New York and Moscow as part of the, the context of the exercise. Again, high fidelity. This context matters. Uh, unfortunately, the operating teams never looked at patient zero. They saw a spearfish. They didn't see a human behind that spearfish or a human target. Uh, and lacked that context, which disrupted the overall response. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't until uh, this, the second day of the exercise that the incident response was enacted and uh, a coordinated um, response was, uh, was, con um, was uh, enacted, ultimately leading to containment of the adversary. <clears throat> And uh, as we uh, see, we had this heightened response that was uh, initiated as a result of the cyber crisis response plan for the espionage actor. We also had a hacktivist actor in the environment as well at the same time, but their actions didn't uh, take place until the second day. Uh, the response to this act activist actor was, hacktivist actor was uh, much uh, more swift uh, due to the heightened response. And very quickly, the teams were able to identify a malicious malware, a wiper malware, that was dropped in the environment. And before it could execute and wipe data, the teams successfully uh, detected that threat. And as well as they had feedback from the Intel team to take uh, the early warnings from uh, Iranian-based actors that were attributed to the hacktivist activity and share uh, operationally throughout the organization, uh, just signs of Iranian actors in the environment and their typical, typical TPT, TTPs that they follow. So what we see a lot of times is we progress this over a day and a half. And remember, we talked about reflection. The time between day one and day two in this exercise format allows teams to sit back, think about their actions uh, from day one, and ultimately, they come to the table day two with an innovative approach, a re-energized focus. In this case, it happened to coincide with the enacting of the cyber crisis response plan, which ultimately uh, proved to be an effective strategy. I'll switch back to... So that'll give you a, a good summation here of of our views into the environment as well as the performance of teams that we work with. We look forward to your reaction and comments after John has a chance to speak. So, so thanks and thanks for sort of setting the stage um, for a discussion about cyber intelligence. So one thing I want to do is I think you guys have done a really good job of, of focusing on the, the what and a little bit on the why uh, of cyber intelligence, why it's important 
why it's part of the um, part of the bigger picture. Um, but but let me just I need to do two things first because I've uh, uh, had a couple of conversations uh, in the run up into this panel today. Uh, so I need to make very clear two th two things. One number one, I'm like Emma Walsh. I'm not a technical guy. I'm a ship driver um, from the start. Uh, Michelle was nice enough to read the last three or four titles that I've had. All of them said intelligence in them, um, and, and to a degree that was accurate. Um, but I think the most important part of that is the fact that I'm an operator in the intelligence world that brings context to what intelligence means. And that, that to me is really critically important. Uh, the other thing that I need to make sure everybody understands is uh, I come from the NKIC, uh, and I need to make sure you understand what the NKIC is. Uh, I'll tell you right up front, the NKIC does not do cybersecurity. We help you do it better. Our role is to help you fulfill your responsibilities, whether they're corporate, government, uh, um, uh, private sector, uh, uh, critical infrastructure, whatever it is, uh, to, to help you do that better. And we do that through the provision of um, information uh, that you can use through the uh, the support uh, of some high talented, really technical people that that are uh, in our organization, um, and and through the information sharing pieces that that relate to intelligence. So so understand, I'm coming from an operator's perspective, in an organization that's in place to help share information and to help you do a better job in your responsibilities for doing cybersecurity. So. Um, I want to talk a little bit about intelligence and, and what does intelligence mean from an operator's context, an operator's point of view. Um, so the thing that I learned in the last 10 years of my career uh, is that the intel folks and the operators don't always do a really good job of talking to each other. And I think you mentioned that earlier. Um, and so one of, one of my goals is to change the way we think about intelligence. And you're not going to do that by having the operators continually beat on the intel guys. It's not going to work. What you've got to do is you've got to figure out how do we train the tradecraft so that they understand the full context of what they're doing. And similar to the exercise that you guys described, the intel folks have to understand what it means. And why are we doing it this way? What does it mean from a mission perspective if you're a government organization? What does it mean from a business perspective if you're a business? Uh, and so what is the intel that I can provide to you uh, that will help you do your better job better in terms of defending your networks? Uh, and that to me is a key thing. Jeff and I have been working on a, a task force with a different organization, INSA, uh, that has been looking for the last couple of three years at cyber intelligence. What does it mean? And, and you know, you can break it down into the traditional levels, tactical, operational, strategic. What I find in my current position is that our intel folks are really focused on the strategic stuff. And you gotta do that. You have to do all three levels. But as an operator, I want something that I can use right now. So how do we get folks trained? How do we get tradecraft changed to have Intel folks think about things in terms of actionable intelligence that a cyber operator can use now? And this is even faster than the company intelligence officer on the ground in a shooting match has to happen because you know cyber stuff happens in milliseconds, right? So I can't wait for four days for you to uh, vet your intelligence product uh, before you can give it to me to use. I need to. I want to use it right now. How do I use it right now? How, how do I have some confidence that it's even close to being correct? And, and am I willing to take the risk 
of stepping out and using intelligence, correct or not, that it might be wrong. Uh, so, so, so there's a balance in that discussion that has to occur there that I think is important. And I think something that, that IWP is probably, uh, I know if Jeff is involved, you're, you're thinking about um, how, that, how that fits together and how do, you, how do you change the way people think about tradecraft and how they exercise those tradecraft skills. Um, one of the big things that I think uh, Admiral Walsh mentioned was the, the importance of partnership uh, in this holistic view of what do we know. Um, the Congress, in their infinite wisdom, signed the legislation in December, uh, CISA, which encourages uh, particularly private entities to share with the government, to share particularly with DHS. We, are, uh, we have a number of different programs that are ongoing right now uh, to encourage you to share because, quite frankly, we don't have all the answers. FireEye EyeSight doesn't have all the answers. This is a team sport. This is a collective effort. Um, and you'd be surprised where some of the best information comes from some of those outliers that are, you know, in the boonies somewhere. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to tell anybody that. I don't know if it's really important and I don't think they'll ever be able to use it. Well, we have to get people to change that. We have to feed it into a group of folks that have been trained to understand the, the, the importance of intelligence and how it's used in an, in an operational setting uh, and, and have them be willing to share. And, and back up to CISA, the same applies to some of these government entities uh, that are sharing with us as, as it applies to the commercial entities. Please, please do. I encourage you to share. We have a number of different programs to do that. My goal and my task is not only to take in what you've provided to us, but also to turn it into something useful for you and share it much more broadly. And that's the power that the NCIC has in terms of sharing information. Um, so, so I think key things to remember, changing the way we think about the tradecraft and cyber intelligence, changing the way we educate not only the intelligence people that are supporting an operation, but also the leadership in those organizations so that they know what to do when they see it as well. Uh, and, and, and along the lines of the exercise that, that these fellows described, where does all that fit together and, and who should be doing what so that we have a constant dialogue? I run into things almost daily where people don't want to share with us because they're afraid we're going to put them on report. How do you get over that? There's, there's really only one way. You have to trust me. How do you get to the point where you trust me? I have to work really, really hard every single day to develop a relationship with you so that you will trust me. So that if I pick up the phone at an agency like the I use this facetiously, the Bureau of Indian Dentistry, uh, <laughs> in the middle of the night, they don't have a 24-7 sock. I don't even know if they have a sock. But if I pick up the phone in the middle of the night and say, look, you are the focal point of some really bad juju coming into government systems. I need you to do this now. I can't tell you why, because it's classified. But I need you to do it now. How do I get that person on the other end of the phone to trust me and to do it so that it doesn't become a wider spreading problem within, within some government systems. That, that's the challenge that I have right now. And, and those are the things that we're trying to address at the end kick. But to kind of bring it all together, the, the thought process that we have with intelligence is how can we get it? How can we use it better? And like Admiral Wall said, we use it not only from government sources, 
from the intelligence community, but also from private sector intelligence providers. In fact, we're a client of ISI Partners, and they provide us some really good stuff. So um, that's what I'd like you to think about. How do we change the way we think about cyber intelligence and how we use it? And the points that these guys made about developing that talent are spot on. We've got to develop the talent to think about it in a different way.